Thank you very much for coming to this session uh, in the LSE Festival. Um, and the title of the session today is LSE in the World, Personalities and Progress. LSE in the World, Personalities and Progress. So this is a session about the history of the school. Okay, I'll pause for a moment while people come in. Mm -hmm. um, we're doing it in the most appropriate possible place, I think. This is one of the best rooms in the school. You are surrounded by portraits of previous directors of the school, many of them very eminent people. Yeah, if you can t take a seat and uh, we'll be starting shortly. I'm just making some introductory remarks. Um, I should let you know that the session is going to be recorded and will be available as a podcast um, normally within a couple of days of the event happening. That will be posted up uh, on the LSE. You should be able to access it from the LSE Festival website. Um, you'll f also find some more information about today's session um, on the screens that are at the back of the room. So uh, we're starting now and we'll be continuing until 2.15. I should say that this event is linked to an exhibition which is down in the atrium, so on the ground floor of this building. And immediately after this session, Sue Donnelly, who is one of our speakers, will be leading, um, providing a guided tour around the atrium exhibition, uh, which is also about personalities and a selection of key personalities in the history of the LSE who had some connection with the school not quite the same um, list of set of personalities as we're hearing about in the session today, though there's quite a lot of overlap between the two, but they're not identical. So if you want to come down and see the exhibition, how long is it on for? It's so, on till next Friday. Yeah, so, so it's on for another, another week, um, so you might want to take the opportunity to see, see it while it's there. So my name's David Stevenson. I'm Professor of International History um, at the school, and um, it's a pleasure to introduce our two speakers, both of whom are extremely well qualified to be talking about the topic. Um, first of all, we have Sue Donnelly on my right here, who is the school's archivist. <coughs> so it's responsible for the excellent collection, very rich collection of papers that we have in the uh, archives room, archives division of the school library. Um, and also runs a, an LSE history blog, which has a lot of fascinating material in it about the history of the school. I've often looked at it, so do consult the LSE history blog if you're interested in the school's history and its connection with the life of the UK and the world in the 20th and 21st centuries. Um, so Sue will be speaking alongside Mick Cox, um, Mick, uh, Professor of International Relations at the school and now also d a Director of Ideas for, for many years. Ideas, one of the most, I think I can say that without you swelling your head, but Ideas has been billed yet again as one of the top and most influential think tanks, I think, in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, and Mick bears a good deal of the credit for that. And Mick, Mick, among other things, is finding time to write a new history of the school. So um, I think what's going to happen is that Mick and Sue are going to take it in turns, approximately. They'll be running through six personalities. Um, and after they've made their presentations, there'll be plenty of opportunity for questions and discussion afterwards. So that's the running order, and um, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing what I'm sure is going to be a very interesting and well-informed discussion um, of the school's history and the personalities who've been, played a part in that. Now then, um, Mick, I think you're going first. I am. I'm going to go first uh, talk about Beatrice Webb, one of the founders of the school, whose painting you can see behind me with her husband, Sidney, and the dog, uh, the famous dog. Um, and then we're going to move on to look at other figures. Sue's going to talk about Harold, Harold Lasky, uh, if we can get that up there, uh, some of the others up there. Uh, okay, 
There we go. Let's let's get some pictures up there first before I start. Okay, fine. There we go. Sorry about this. All the best techno. Ah, here we go. And uh, yeah. So we're going to alternate a wee bit. If you can get uh, get Beatrice up there, that would be nice. Beatrice coming up. Okay, this is the person that I want to talk about. For I, let, let me just say by way of preamble, I mean, we've chosen six. It's not entirely arbitrary, I think that would be fair to say. I think we've chosen six who we think have made a big contribution to the, to the life and history of the school. And, and by the way, also a big contribution to the world. And so in a way, this is not just something parochial, aren't we good? And haven't we had some very interesting people within the LSE who have shaped the history and the ideas at the LSE and the running of the LSE, but people we think in turn, all, all six of our, our, our selected uh, stars, if you like, superstars for today at least, have in turn shaped the world. And this was certainly true of the second speaker that Sue will talk about, Clement Attlee, who went on to become Prime Minister of this country in 1945. But certainly true of all the others who didn't necessarily go on to become prime ministers. We could have chosen another six, to be perfectly honest with you. So I've always said, you know, if you're an anthropologist, please don't feel peeved that there's not an anthropologist here. There, there were some great anthropologists, still are some great anthropologists at the school. Malinowski, others did a fantastic job. Edward Westermark. I don't think we've even cho chosen a. Well, we have chosen an economist, of course, in the, in the shape of Lewis, but not. He wasn't actually in the free market tradition of much of the economics department as well, such as Hayek, and there's others we could have chosen. So we, we've simply chosen those we wanted really to talk about today. Uh, so apologies to those who are not mentioned. Uh, it isn't we're trying to write you out of history, it's just we've, we've only got an hour and a quarter to talk on six, six very important people. And the person I want to start off with today is none other than Beatrice Webb, whose picture you can see up here in the famous painting. Uh, taken sometime in the 19, late 1930s, I would imagine that, because it's a very typical painting. It, it, gives, you quite a lot, it gives you quite a lot of insight into the relationship to uh, talking about ideas, talking about what they were probably writing at the time, both Beatrice and Sidney Webb. A brief biography, very quickly. Uh, Beatrice Webb was born uh, Beatrice Potter um, to an industrialist called Richard Potter and his wife, Lorenzina Hayworth. She was born in the mid-19th century in 1858, so very much a product of the Victorian period. Um, one of eight or nine daughters, and they were known as, as the Potter sisters, and she was one of them. Um, Beatrice was an intelligent child, it goes without saying, she read a lot. Um, she never went to university, because women did not at that stage. Um, but nonetheless, the family was, uh, I would call it, an open-minded liberal family, educated, no question about that. Many of the friends of the family were important thinkers of the time, uh, such as Herbert Spencer, the great evolutionary sociologist of the time. So the atmosphere was, I think, seriously intellectual, seriously in engaged. And Beatrice herself once said, as a very young woman, uh, that life was about self-sacrifice for the good and the community, and that was the greatest of all human characteristics. Um, in 1883, she joined the charity organization Society. This was important both in terms of her understanding social problems, but it also turned her against charity, not because she was an uncharitable person per se, I think, but I think she believed that charity itself was not gonna be the answer to the social 
and economic problems of the time. It sounds terribly kind of hard-nosed, but she, she and both Sydney said, well, charity is never going to solve the problems of the day, of poverty, of health, of housing, all the fundamental social economic problems to which, of course, she devoted her life. And, and that, in a sense, took her really then into thinking more and more about poverty, its causes. And, of course, she worked as a researcher from 1886 onwards, of course, on Charles Booth's uh, extraordinarily important study of life and labor in London. She was one of the researchers on that. And one of the things I found quite remarkable about Beatrice Potter was the degree to which, it, if I can put it in, in, in these terms, she got her hands dirty. She didn't just sit in a study thinking, she actually get, went out there and actually researched things very much on the ground. Um, she went to the East End of London and worked in the sweatshops of, of East London. Um, you know, she, she, in, in Lancashire, she did the same. She really did get out there to see what conditions were like uh, on, on, on the ground. And while working in Lancashire, uh, Beatrice Potter, as she was then called, became interested in work and, and the different cooperative societies which were then uh, springing up in, in late 19th century in industrial England. And of course, one of her first books was on the uh, cooperative movement. Um, she met two men in her life, and I don't want to dwell on this, but one man you know, was, not the, was the one, in, I suppose, the personal and political do come together here, quite importantly, I think. Uh, the first man she met, and probably almost certainly fell in love with, was the leading politician of the day, Joseph Chamberlain. Um, and there's a very moving and touching uh, sort of reminiscences by Beatrice in her diaries, which, by the way, are fantastic source of information. She wrote diaries all the time. They weren't published at the time where she kind of talks about should she subordinate her life to be in love with a traditional man who wanted her to be effectively a traditional woman and wife. And in the end, she decided not, even though you mean, her, her romantic affection for Joseph Chamberlain was, was, was very great. And so she, in a sense, rejected what I would call the path that many women of her class and time uh, would have taken at the time. Uh, for those particular reasons. It also should be pointed out that it would be difficult this day to characterize Beatrice as a feminist in the, in, the, in, the, in the sense that we would understand it today. And indeed, in her, early, in her early years, she was not actually in favor of the vote for women. She did change her mind over time, but at first. So her, her, her views on this you know, quite interesting, complicated, and indeed somewhat complex. She then, however, did meet the, the person, the man, who did in fact change her life and with whom she, she remained uh, married until their deaths in the 19, 1940s. And of course, this was Sidney Webb. Sidney had none of the social graces of a Chamberlain. This was true. In fact, she had all sorts of problems about waiting for people to die in her family and, and <laughs> close friends because he was so unacceptable socially um, to, to, to the kind of society that she had grown up in. I, I, again, Beatrice, I, I regard as one of the most remarkable women of, the, of that period of the 20th century. And Sydney, I think, it was also an extraordinarily remarkable person. You know, if you measure people not by also what they say, but also by what they achieve, then in that sense, Sydney Webb is, is one of the great figures of the 20th century, not only in terms of 
helping indeed being maybe central to the creation of the school, but also to many, many other things as he did a Labour MP and many, many other things beside, you know, the creation of the New Statesman magazine, etc., etc., etc. They met, um, they were in love. It wasn't the kind of romantic love that she had had, I suppose, with Joseph Chamberlain. And again, there's some very amusing and quite telling comments that she makes about Sydney. I won't repeat them here. They're perfectly nice. But in a way, it, the thing about Beatrice you find in her diaries is, is extraordinary honesty and sharpness of observation. She, she let, in a sense, she was very tough, but equally tough on herself as well as she was on any, anybody else. She didn't suffer fools greatly. Anyway, they got married and worked together on a number of joint uh, intellectual ventures. The history of trade unionism came out in 1894, industrial democracy 1897. And in a sense it was, as the book, her book says, it was our partnership. And it really was a partnership. And I think she always said, and I think Sidney always recognised, he would never have achieved what he achieved, including the founding of the LSE with four, three others. He would never have achieved what he achieved without Beatrice. But this is not a story of the, 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 the woman in the kitchen behind the great man at the front of house. This was an equal partnership in every single sense of, of the word. And it was a remarkable partnership which lasted for the better part of 50 years and not only in their writings but also in their achievements. I think it changed not only this school in fact self-establish it but also the world itself. Now finally this is the point where I'll end on the question of the LSE itself. The story's been told so many times before I'm not going to repeat it. As you know the beginnings began with the discussions in 1894. The school was founded in 1894 uh, over, over the road there um, in, in, in very unsalubrious circumstances I'm sure you're pretty well aware. There's been a lot written on that so I'm not going to repeat it. She was there from the very beginning with Sydney, with George Bernard Shaw, and of course with Graham Wallace, uh, who became the professor of government at the school, although turned down the first directorship, which went to A.S. Hewins, you'll see on the thing. What did she bring to the school, and, and what was it that she contributed to? And I'll, I, I'll put three points very quickly before handing on to Sue to talk about, about Clement Attlee. I, I think basically she brought some considerable intellectual talents I mean, you know, Beatrice was, by any stretch of the imagination, an extraordinary intellectual. You know, if you read through her diaries, what she read, when she, she took a whole year engaging with Marx to work out that the labor theory of value was wrong. Now, not many people were doing that at the time, but she did it. She went through a whole bunch of other readings on evolutionism, on Darwin, to think where she stood intellectually. I mean, it was really a, a woman of remarkable intellectual talents which she brought to, to the creation of the school. I think also she brought, and you get this all the time, there's some very funny things about having, having dinner with um, Beatrice. There's always seemed to be mutton that they were eating. But anyway, what, she wasn't the greatest cook in the world, but that may tell you a lot about the time. She, she wanted these dinners to be serious dinners for serious conversations with serious people. They actually located their house, by the way, as close to the House of Commons as possible, along on this side of the, of the Thames, so she could be close to power. And, 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 and that performed a very important social function. It wasn't a dinner for sitting around drinking too much and eating fine food. It was it, these the, bring the great and the good and the influential, whom they wanted to influence. And that was also an important part. And that brings me to the third point. And again, there are many more things I could say about this, this remarkable woman. Beatrice had, I think, what Sydney didn't have, which was social standing, social confidence, and money. 
And all of those things did make a difference. It meant that Sydney, for instance, could give up his civil service job because he had an endowment and enough money to, to support him in the work that he was doing, both politically and the huge work he was doing at the NSE. And I would say, too, and this, this room actually is a testimony to it in a way, because the money for this, of course, didn't come from George Bernard Shaw. It came from his wife, Charlotte Payne Townsend, an extraordinary Irish woman, uh, who now Charlotte Shaw and gave the name to the library, but also bringing people into the school who could support the school both financially and in terms of influence. And I think, again, Beatrice played an enormous role in that, in that early poverty-stricken moment this energy and, and social contact and the confidence she brought, which she continued to bring to the... To, to the and, and in my way, I'd say, that would the school have been founded without her? I probably think not, because I don't think Sydney, who was key to this, would have been able to do it and would have had the confidence to do it without the extraordinary contribution, not just support, that she made uh, when it came into being and continued, of course, right until her death in, in 1943. Thank you very much. Sue, over to you. So I partly chose Clement Attlee um, for this talk and also uh, for the exhibition because I think his connection with the school is not always that well known. Uh, he's not often listed as one yeah. of our kind of great figures, uh, interestingly. Um, but I do think that his 10-year association with the school, which had a, a break during the First World War, actually gave him uh, a, a time in which he was able to think about some of the issues around poverty and social welfare and to engage with them within the context of the school in a way which was very significant for his, his kind of future career. Um, Rather like uh, Beatrice Webb in a way, I mean, Clement Attlee came from a, a rather solid upper middle class background. He was born in Putney in London. He was the seventh of eight children. And his early years were in some ways very, very typical of what you might expect of that kind of background. He attended Haleybury School, which had originally been the East India College, uh, about 20 miles north of London. He then went on to University College, Oxford, and in 1906 he was called to the bar. And things, I suppose, seemed set for a fairly regular career of, um, you know, civil service, law, whatever. But in that year, in 1907, he made a, a change and he became the resident manager at a boys' club in Stepney. And that began his, his direct experience of the life of those who had an awful lot less than the experience of his own family. The following, a uh, couple of years later in 1909, he became a secretary of Toynbee Hall. Now Toynbee Hall, in, which still exists today in the east end of London, was founded in 1884 by Samuel and Henrietta Barnett as a place really specifically for people who they viewed as the future leaders of society to live and work alongside um, ordinary people uh, to try and develop practical solutions and to, which would then be continued into their commitment into wider public life as a way of effecting change in society. Um, 
Attlee isn't the only uh, person from LSE who had a connection with Toynbee Hall. Uh, the director, William Beveridge, uh, who you can see on the top row at the right-hand side in his robes as uh, vice-chancellor of the University of London, uh, actually also uh, worked at Toynbee Hall from 1903. At the same time, uh, just before he moved to Toynbee Hall, uh, Clement Attlee had joined the Independent Labour Party, which marked the beginning of a commitment both to social work and kind of practical engagement, also political action uh, in, in support of those who uh, of the, the poor in the city. In 1912, Attlee was appointed a lecturer in the then new uh, Social Science and Administration Department here at LSE. The department had been, was set up that year uh, with, in fact, the economic, later economic historian R.H. Tawney as its director. It was funded by an Indian businessman, Ratan Tata, uh, as a place specifically to investigate re uh, and do research into the causes of inequality and poverty. Um, obviously, a very long-term interest of the school. Uh, but also to provide practical training for those who were going to uh, take part in many kinds of welfare work, uh, either in university settlements or in hospitals, um, in local authorities. Um, and Attlee uh, came here on the princely salary of £75 a year. You've probably seen quite a lot after Toynbee Hall. Um, and... Uh, his, uh, his, he actually lectured on what was known as the machinery of government. Mm. So he was actually doing uh, research into and speaking on you know, how local government work, how government departments work, so that people working uh, within various welfare communities uh, could understand the system in which they were trying to support mm. people. Um, he also worked to support those people who were here doing what was known as the social science training course, which was an early precursor of social work training in the UK. Attlee uh, stayed here for two years, and in 1914, he joined up uh, during the First World War uh, and had, I suppose, what many people would consider a very good war. Um, <laughs> He became a major, he saw action in Gallipoli, in Mesopotamia, and in France. And then he returned to the school after the war, continuing to lecture on local government. And he was also editing something called the Social Service Library. Um, and he himself wrote a book uh, entitled The Social Worker. Mm. Attlee was co-opted as mayor of Stepney in 1919, and he finally left the school in 1922 after he was elected MP for Limehouse and then went on to serve in the Labour governments of 1924, 1929-31, and eventually joined the war government in 1940 as leader of the Labour Party, where he became Deputy Prime Minister in 1940, um, with the, the main role of ensuring the smooth running of actual government of the country. Following... Um, as most of us will know, after the Labour landslide victory in 1945, Attlee became Prime Minister, uh, certainly to the disappointment of several of his uh, Labour Party colleagues. Um, and, of course, the achievements of that 1945 Labour government have, have kind of shaped 
debate in public life ever since, the NHS, national insurance, um, things that have been proposed by Beveridge, who he'd worked alongside at LSC. He became a peer in 1955, and his ashes were interred in Westminster Abbey, where actually Beatrice Webbs and Sidney Webbs are as, as well. Yeah. I think there are a few people who perhaps had such a major impact on British life, but he was always known for being rather unassuming and <laughs> was often described perhaps a bit like Sidney Webb as being physically unimpressive. Um, <laughs> But again, we, we have, like Beatrice, this kind of very practical involvement at the early stages of their career, a, a desire to really know what was happening to people and how the, the condition of the world around them really impacted on people's lives. Um, in this room, perhaps there is a story that um, perhaps reflects that kind of almost unassuming but practical nature. In 1962, the Social Policy Department marked its 50th anniversary. Social Policy is really the successor of that Social Science and Administration Department. And uh, as often happens at LSE, a uh, drinks party was held in this room. And at the end, several people were wondering who the elderly gentleman was who yeah. had attended. And it turned out that it had been Clement Attlee, who at the time was living in Lincoln's Inn Fields. <laughs> Thanks very much, Sue. That's a terrific story, isn't it, about, about him. In a way, uh, the next person I'm going to talk about was not modest. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and Clement Attlee later in life said to him, we were talking about this just before we came up, he said of Harold Lasky, the person, if you could bring it up, Sue, yeah, of Harold Lasky, who was a lecturer here for 30 years between 1920 and 1950, a period of silence would now be welcome from you, Mr. Lasky. Um, but Lasky, possibly more than any other figure in the interwar period, between the end of the Great War, as it's called, and the end of the Second World War, going into the beginnings of the Cold War. Lasky, it, it, I don't want to exaggerate, because this is something of a hero of mine, to be perfectly honest, about which much has been written, although he didn't leave many papers, did he, Sue, for the archives, which is very unfortunate. Um, in a way, if the school got an identity, rightly or wrongly, as being a sort of hotbed of radical ideas. In some sense, of course, the fact that the Fabians did have a lot to do with the origin of the school. I mean, this is a fa it had a Fab Fabian roots. And so, therefore, the nature of the way the school was always seen came through the prism of its founders. Um, but although the school itself did not always appoint Fabians to any positions, including, of course, a number of the... Only one Fabian, I think, was ever really appointed to be director of the school. It wasn't a party school. But nonetheless, the school did get a, a, what I would call an image, a reputation, uh, which it's never quite shaken off, even maybe to today, I don't, I don't know, but certainly in that period. And if it got a reputation for being a hotbed of radical ideas, as it certainly did between the wars, at least, and certainly after it, then I think the principal reason for this was probably almost certainly one person called Harold Lasky. Lasky came from a Jewish Manchester background and at a very young age displayed the kind of intellectual self-confidence which annoyed enemies and even annoyed many of his friends, but it never deserted him. It was, it was one, of his, one of the many biographies, there were some very good biographies done of, um, of, of Lasky. I, I think uh, Sidney and Beatrice Webb still deserve more, actually, by the way, of biography. Uh, that's another story. But one of his biographers, Mike Newman, who's very sympathetic to Lasky's politics on the left, said from the age of 11, 
Lasky attended Manchester Grammar School, a very fine grammar school, of course, then and now, where he soon revealed his precocious intellect, his ability to read and absorb the contents of books at immense speed and to write in an authoritative and witty way. He was also already an accomplished speaker who could debate on equal terms with adults. How annoying he must have been. Um, and there's the marked contrast, I think, between Harold Lasky's personality and, 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 and that of... Uh, uh, the, pre- the, pre- the previous person we, we, we were talking about. Um, he went from there to Oxford. From there, he, I think he did want to join during the war, but anyway, he, he was ruled out by virtue of bad, bad eyesight and health generally. He went to Canada where he lectured for a period of time at McMaster University. He then got a position at Harvard uh, during World War I, largely in the law school, primarily in the law school. In fact, his early writings are really about law. It shows you how broad the notion, it wasn't really political science as we would understand the American form of it today. It was a much broader conception, philosophical, with a strong, with a strong relationship to, to law uh, as well. He was already clearly a person, what we might call a radical and a critic, and somebody who never could keep quiet which I think was one of his great strengths as well as maybe possibly his weakness. And there was a, a strike just after the First World War. There was a lot of labor and political unrest in the United States. And there was a lot of political repression directed against it as well. And it was a difficult time. The Red Scares were on the Bolshevik Revolution that happened in Russia. Uh, you know, the fear of Bolshevism, the fear of communism, the fear of anarchism even was running, running wild in the United States. So there was a but politically rather repressive atmosphere against anybody regarded as nonconformist, dangerous, radical, or had any sympathy for the Russian Revolution. Uh, and indeed, at the time, there was a Boston police strike, and he was a Harvard academic, and he came out in support of that strike and, and for the wives and, uh, of that. And this did not go down terribly well with the Harvard faculty. And I, 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 in a sense, he was kicked out, pushed out at least. You know, it was made clear to him that staying at Harvard really wasn't a very, a very good idea at all. And he came here. The reason he came here, I mean, is an interesting one. I think here again, I mentioned one of the four founders of the school, a very remarkable person about, about whom we need to say more because I think he did a lot more than sometimes people recognize, and that was Graham Wallace. Um, and Graham Wallace, I think, was, a, was really instrumental, I think it would be fair to say, Sue, in bringing, in bringing the, the brilliant, the young, brilliant Harold Lasky. I mean, he had enormous reputation even in the States. You know, Supreme Court judges of a liberal character really remarked about the brilliance of this young man, the sheer vivacity of his intellect, and this extraordinary self-confidence that underpinned his learning as well. His reputation at the school when he came in 1920 and he died in 1950, effectively, from, largely from smoking, as far as I can ascertain. Uh, maybe, there may have been other things, but he was a very, very heavy smoker throughout that 30-year period, and, of course, very much engaged. I think his reputation rested on three pillars at the school and, 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 and in the wider field. Again, he was known in the wider field. I mean, he wasn't just known in the school. Lasky was known very well outside of it. And in a sense, for many people, particularly on the conservative right, when they thought of the LSE in those years, they thought of Harold Lasky, this firebrand lecturer, you know, never prepared to keep quiet about any issue he felt was unjust. One of the reasons, by the way, he became involved in the issue of Indian independence was that he was, in, he was invited, he became a, a jury member in a, in a famous trial to, to do with the Amritsar massacre. 
And he was the only member of the jury, the only, there were white people, of course, but he was the only white member of the jury who came out in favor uh, against the Crown in, in terms of trying to defend the Amritsar massacre, which had occurred in 1919, 1920 in India. And from that moment onwards, of course, he became a very vocal supporter for Indian independence and a close friend, of course, of many of those who were the founders of the first of the India in, after 1947, including Nehru and many, many others Beside, in some ways, his reputation continued on in India, probably better, more so after the war and during the Cold War uh, than it did in, in the West. But his, his reputation, I think, rested on three pillars, basically. Firstly, Lasky is a writer. He could never stop writing. Um, I mean, he wrote a lot before he arrived at the LSE, but he wrote something close to 20, 25 books, pamphlets, while at the LSE. Political thought in England from Locke to Bentham, the foundations of sovereignty, position of parties and the right of dissolution. Probably his most famous book was called A Grammar of Politics, which was published in 1925, which had a huge influence uh, on, 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 on radical thought. Lasky, I think, was a socialist. He clearly was a socialist. He regarded himself as a socialist. But I remember an historian I, I, I read a lot of, a man called Edward Hallett Carr, said that Lasky sounds more socialist. He's probably deep down a radical liberal. You know, and, and he, he likes Marx, but he's not a Marxist. He talks sympathetically of Marx. He wrote an introduction to the Communist Manifesto in, in, in 1948, but was he a Marxist himself? And, you know, there, there was always that. But he always sounded extraordinarily radical during in that period. And, and his last one of his great books, I think, was The Rise of European liberal, Liberalism. So, in a sense, his first... His first, uh, the first prop of his reputation was as a, a persistent and consistent writer. Um, and by the way, as, as somebody on the left, um, this is an interesting thing to remember when we contemplate the, some of the left today, so-called left today. Uh, he had no truck at all with anti-Americanism. He was a great admirer of American democracy. He was a great admirer of what America had achieved. He was not. He was not. Uh, unaware of its downsides, slavery and all the rest. He didn't like the capitalist very much, as you could well imagine. Nonetheless, he did think there was a kind of a dream of America, which was social justice, popular justice, and that the ordinary people would rule this kind of populism, which has been given a bad name now, but was, was not such a bad thing then. He was a huge admirer, by the way, of Franklin Delano Roosevelt's New Deal. And in many ways, I think his politics of the 30s were very much shaped by the, by the New Deal politics of the United States and pushing it somewhat uh, to the left, the four great freedoms, of freedom from want, etc., which, of course, also linked in to the kinds of ideas of William Beveridge at the same time. The second way in which I think Lasky made a huge impact on the school, and maybe more so than even his writings, was Lasky as a teacher and, and Lasky as a lecturer. Whenever you read anything about people who went to lectures at the time in the school, the one person they time and again came around to say, what an experience was going to a lecture by Harold Lasky. I mean, he always did lectures without notes, they were witty, uh, they always ended on time, which is also a very thing, big thing we can draw a lesson from today, I suppose, David, because I always go over time, as you well know. But let me just give you one little quote. This comes from somebody you may have heard of. It's Ralph Miliband, who was a lecturer here at the school. He, he, he was educated at the school under Lasky and, of course, is the father of Ed David Miliband as well. 
And uh, Ralph, whom I did know personally, not, not terribly well, but I did meet Ralph in the, in the 70s. Um, Ralph attended Lasky's lectures, and in some ways, Ralph Miliband came to the school because of Lasky, in, in many ways. And what, La what Ralph said about, about Lasky's lectures, his lectures taught more, much more than political science. They taught a faith that ideas mattered, that knowledge was important, and its pursuit exciting. His seminars taught tolerance, the willingness to listen, although one disagreed, the value of ideas being confronted. And it was all immense fun, an exciting game that had meaning. It was also a sieve of ideas, a gymnastics of the mind carried on with vigor and directed unobtrusively with superb craftsmanship. R Ralph obviously is very sympathetic to Lasky, as you might gather from, from, from those guys. Others kind of said, well, he was an old windbag, really, and I didn't really learn very much in his lectures, and he didn't know anything about economics. So there was always another side on it. Lasky also, by the way, got to know the American ambassador here quite well in the late 1930s, Joseph Kennedy, who was no great friend of the United Kingdom, of course, in the late 1930s. And we always talk about John F. Kennedy being one of the alumni of the school. Well, he really was and he wasn't. But the, the son was, the eldest son was, Joe Kennedy Jr. did attend and actually attended the lectures of Lasky. And Lasky, and again, it tells you a lot about Lasky's self-confidence. When John Kennedy wrote the book called when it, While England Slept, which is about appeasement in the 30s, he said the script, I think, and I, I, I dug the story out from somewhere. I can't remember the source of it. He dug it out and sent it to, to Lasky and said, this is not as good as a master's thesis. I wouldn't have it published. Well, this didn't go down terribly well with Lasky. He, he lectured in America, by the way. And this is, again, an interesting part of the Lasky influence, the degree to which he went to, he went to the United States. It was very well received there, but also, by the way, always followed by the FBI, who regarded him as a rather dangerous person indeed. Finally, Lasky is a public intellectual. He was a public intellectual when it came to Indian independence. He was, a, he was always on the main national committee of the Labour Party. He always represented the left of the Labour Party. And he was always a, side, a thorn in the side of the Labour establishment, particularly of Clement Attlee. And, uh, and as I say, he made that, Attlee made that famous statement about Lasky, a period of silence would now be most welcome, Mr Attlee. But when Lasky died in 1950, I think something about the school died with him. And I think a lot of people will take that moment as a transitional moment. And they do take this as a trap. Because the person who replaced him, of course, was not a radical on the left. It was Michael Oakeshott, a brilliant philosopher by any stretch of the imagination, but somebody not exactly in the same political camp uh, as Harold Lasky. Thank you. So, so moving on, I'm going to um, talk a bit about Arthur Lewis, who perhaps reflects another aspect of um, something that was very important at the school from its very early days, which is the presence here of large numbers of overseas students. Mm. Um, and this is something that people often talk about, about contemporary mm. LSE, but it is in fact something that's been part of the DNA of the school from the very beginning, that right from the early years, partly because of connections with London and indeed Empire. There were lots of students coming here from uh, India, from the Caribbean, from Africa, as well as from Europe and, and other countries. Perhaps partly because LSE was new and therefore it had no traditions that had to be fought against in many ways. Um, it also didn't have the same kind of requirements for entry that some places uh, had, like, you know, you didn't have to know Latin or <laughs> some of those other things which were barriers in the way of students uh, attending the school. Um, and, and Lewis is also 
important because he was LSE's first black academic here at the school. He arrived in England from St. Lucia in 1933. And interestingly, he actually chose not to do the BSc Econ. Mm. He actually chose to do a Bachelor in Commerce degree, which was the kind of business studies almost kind of course that had been set up in 1919. Practically, uh, Lewis knew that it was unlikely that he'd ever be able to get a kind of job in either the civil service or the what was then known as the colonial service uh, at that time. And so his plan was to do a Bachelor in Commerce and then to go into business. He was certainly not considering a kind of academic career. Later in his um, Nobel Prize biography, Lewis describes his time at LSE as being a time of marvellous intellectual feasts. And in 1933, he got a first-class degree. He did try and enter the colonial service and applied for a post in Trinidad, but uh, failed to get it, unsurprisingly, and was then awarded a scholarship to study for a PhD here at LSE and was also appointed to a temporary assistant lectureship in 1938. Although academic life was relatively successful for Lewis, he also recalled later that as a, uh, a black man in London in the 1930s, he was subject to what he called the usual disabilities, refusal of accommodation, denial of jobs for which he had been recommended, generalized discourtesy, and the rest. And indeed, his first attempt to enter academic life, which was, which was at Liverpool University, failed because he was rejected as they decided they were not ready yet to have uh, someone like Lewis as an academic. And indeed, even here at LSE, there was a little bit of uh, concern about the appointment. The, the decision to appoint Lewis was unanimous. Uh, there was no, dis no question that he was the best candidate for the job. But unlike with other appointments, the then director, Alexander uh, Carl Saunders, felt that he needed to explain the, division, the decision to the school governors. And indeed, initially, his teaching was restricted to groups of students. He was not uh, allowed to do one-to-one -one teaching with students. Despite this, uh, the following year, when the school was evacuated to Cambridge uh, during the Second World War, as one of the few teachers who was not called up for civil or military service initially, Lewis, along with uh, Friedrich Hayek, undertook a rather heavy teaching load. Uh, and indeed, Hayek later called him one of our best teachers. And indeed, by this time, there is no mention of a ban on one-to-one -one teaching, probably because it was being simply ignored uh, at the time. We don't know much about his reception at Cambridge, where, of course, a lot of the teaching became combined. Uh, we do know that he wasn't offered rooms in Peterhouse, like some other LSE academics, but then nor were the women academics. Um, and he was perhaps a little too junior to have been granted that privilege anyway. In 1942, he published uh, his first book, Some Aspects of the Flow of Capital into the British Colonies, and was finally uh, given a kind of civil uh, service post as secretary to the Colonial Economic Advisory Committee, where he attempted, not always successfully, to get some solid economic research going into the context of um, the development of British, Britain's colonial uh, uh, colonies. 
1948, Lewis actually left LSE. He went to Manchester University as a full professor, and he later went on to be the first vice-chancellor of the University of the West Indies. And in 1979, he won the Nobel Prize for Economics for pioneering research into economic development with particular consideration of the problems of developing countries. And that work was most fully uh, described in two books he published whilst at Manchester University, The Economic Development with Unlimited Supplies of Labour and A Theory of Economic Growth in which he argued very much that um, economic growth was not just about what governments did, it was about the whole of, of how a society developed with political, social and cultural influences and the beginning of a much more rounded approach to development economics. And he still, uh, as part of the exhibition downstairs, you can actually see a film which has recently been mm. produced by the International Development de uh, Department about his, um, his work. But he's a really a very interesting character and representative of many of those um, students who came to LSE from outside of the UK. We go back to the old Department of Social Administration for my final candidate. Mick always says she's one of my favourites. I'm not sure whether she is, but I do <laughs> think she's often overlooked, yeah. which is Eileen Younghusband, who was... Uh, a key member of staff in the social science and administration department both before and after the Second World War. And I think sadly, her, part of her story is about how the school didn't always value people mm. who were doing good things. Um, she spent her early years in India, um, as did many members mm. of the school, like Orange Tawney Beveridge was born in India. Mm. Her father Francis was an army officer and an explorer in northern India and Tibet. And her interest in welfare work, rather like Attlee's, began uh, when she worked at the Princess Club settlement in Bermondsey, which was a, a settlement founded by Princess Marie Louise, who was a granddaughter of Queen Victoria. It was a place that provided things like classes in home economics and sewing and training for, for work for women in the area, young women in the area, as well as kind of social events like concerts and dancing. She came to LSE first of all in 1928 when she studied for the social science certificate, i.e. Um, the training course for those intending to do some welfare work. And then she went on to do the more advanced diploma in social, sociology the following year, uh, which she obtained with distinction. And she immediately became a tutor in the department. During the Second World War, she uh, went back to practical welfare work. She worked on the setting up of citizens' advice bureaus. She was chief training officer for the National Association of Girls Clubs. Uh, she worked for the National Assistance Board. And she also uh, worked on the Displaced Persons Program for United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation. In 1945, she decided to come back to the school even though it meant taking a pay cut from her work with the United Nations. And at the same time, she was commissioned by the National Council of Social Service to undertake a project that was uh, being funded by the Carnegie Trust to under undertake an investigation into the training of social workers. I mean, at the time, there was no um, accepted um, system of training for social work and no kind of idea that there were a, a list of core skills that you might expect somebody to, to undertake, and nor did any of the courses really include any practical experience for people who were training to be social workers. 
She published two reports, Employment and Training of Social Workers in 1947 and Social Work in Britain in 1951, both of which advocated for generic training for social work built around a core knowledge which would be common to everybody who was going to work in the field. LSE uh, ran a pilot course around these principles, the Carnegie course in applied social science, which started in 1954. And it did, in fact, revolutionize social work training in the UK. For the first time, there was a standard idea of mm. what people who were going to do welfare work should be expected to know about. Unfortunately, I think Young Husband found herself in the 1950s at the center of a conflict at the school, really at a time when the school was um, thinking about its role uh, between doing pure research and also practical training mm -hmm. for people. Um, I mean, initially, teaching and training for people who were going to work in contemporary society was very much part of Sydney Webb's initial mm. kind of vision for the school, and that was something that began to change, certainly after the Second World War. When Richard Titmus was appointed as a professor of social policy, um, it seems that um, he was tasked in some ways in making the department more academic and less practical. Um, there are many versions of the story and many points of view about it. Um, but it does appear that many of the women who were involved in the social work training in the 1950s rather fell foul of those, those developments. Mm. And in 1958, when the social work training at the school was reviewed, Young Husband was not appointed to head up that work, although mm. she fully expected to be so. And in the end, she resigned from the school. She did end up returning to the school to work part-time. Um, but she was never as closely involved uh, with the department or with its work afterwards. But she continued to be incredibly active in speaking and writing about social work training for the rest of her life. And I think one of her roles, uh, perhaps a bit like Lasky, was that she was very much a conduit between America and the UK looking at social work training. She had strong links with many of the other women who were developing this work in the USA. And there was a strong um, flow of information and discussion between them. Uh, and in fact, um, many of her close friends in social work training were in the USA. She never became a reader. She never became a professor. However, in 1964, she did become a dame. Um, and she died in a car crash in 1981, visiting one of those friends in the United States. So now she is somebody kind of worth remembering, but it's a little sad that at the time she was perhaps not as valued as much as she mm. should have been. Mm. Thanks, Suze. Another great story. We end uh, looking at probably, I suppose one would say, in the shape of Karl Popper, one of the most influential philosophers of the 20th century. Um, I'm not a philosopher, so I'm going to keep away from all sorts of questions of logical inductivism, logical positivism, and the questions of falsifiability, etc., etc., etc. I'll leave that for the philosophers. But Karl Popper is generally regarded as one of the greatest philosophers of science, not just the philosophy of science, uh, of the 20th century. Um, his thought has influenced many, many others throughout the 20th century, and of course within the own department. Others followed him, like Imre Lakatos. 
He was lauded by Bertrand Russell, who, by the way, was also, Lord Bertrand Russell was also a friend of the schools and certainly a friend of the Webbs in, in, the, in the early years. And, of course, went on, to, uh, went on to influence a number of people, in particular, I suppose, in relationship to the school, none other than George Soros. George Soros arrived here from Hungary, Hungarian-Jewish, uh, at the end of World War II, fortunately got out of Hungary before, before the, the massacre of the Jews there, uh, arrived, um, I think, washed tables, you know, just lived a really tough life, um, and came under the influence of none other than Karl Popper. And Karl Popper's influence around, and by, by the way, if you read uh, Soros today, he says that it was Soros's theory of, of, of knowledge and his ways of thinking of constantly testing your ideas against reality and trying to falsify them. This kind of constant engagement with the empirical, never thinking you've arrived at the truth, that all theories are in themselves there to be falsified and then to be re-engaged with again. He actually said that one of the reasons he made so much money was because of Popper. So it, I've always said that if you wanted to become a zillionaire, not just a measly millionaire, study philosophy. This is the way forward, obviously. Uh, indeed, there was another, there's another Greek, Greek millionaire, by the way, who's also studied under Popper. So Popper had an enormous influence. One of our directors over there the, on the bottom ranks there, uh, Ralph Garendorf, when he came here to study in, in, the, in the late 40s, early 50s, again was much influenced by, by, by Popper. Um, Popper's background, of course, very different to what we've just heard. Uh, he was born in Vienna, one of the great centers of knowledge. I mean, again, when one looks at the history of intellectual thought in Europe in the 20th century, we quite often would think of Paris, we may think of Berlin, we may even think sometimes of London. Um, but uh, Vienna, for me, really emerges pre-war Vienna emerges as an extraordinary place of thought. It wasn't entirely Jewish, but there was a clearly a strong Jewish intelligentsia, largely secularized Jews, it has to be said, who, who played such a key role in, in, in the creation of, of the city within then, of course, the Austro-Hungarian uh, Empire. And he, he grew up in that and, of course, uh, came from a, a relatively wealthy family, there's, there's no question about that. Uh, after the war, he joined the Social Democratic Party. Uh, he, for a period of time, was engaged with Marxism, there's no doubt. It was difficult not to be in Austria or Germany after the First World War. Marxism was such an influential doctrine and, of course, propagated not just by the Communist Party, but also by the Socialist Parties, who still consider themselves to be, at least conceptually and theoretically, uh, Marxist, if not necessarily revolutionary in the sense of Bolshevism. He, he spent most of that early period of his life developing many of his, both his political ideas and certainly his theoretical ideas on philosophy uh, within, within Vienna. It's one of the great stories of the school, which I'm always telling people, and I gave a lecture on this last term, about the role of Sir William Beveridge and what he did in the 1930s of helping Jews get out of Germany and then get out of Austria. And it was the Academic Assistance Council which played such a fantastic part 
And by the way, William Beveridge was in Vienna when they made the first list. Hitler and the Nazis brought out the first list of all the Jews in the universities in Germany who were going to be losing their jobs. And that meant, that meant about 500 senior Jewish academics in the German universities. Now, of course, this had not yet arrived in Austria, but everybody knew the way the wind was going to blow. And of course, of course, in the end, of course, the disaster that befell Austria after Anschluss in 38. But clearly, uh, coming from the background he did, there was no doubt that he had to try and get out. And he came to England in the 1930s. Here he met a number of people. He stayed in England, by the way, for, 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 about, nine, for about nine months. He was teaching. He met a number of other very formidable intellectuals at the time. One of his closest friends was the great art historian Ernst Gombrich. He also met Hayek at the time, although Hayek was not Jewish and was in an entirely different field of study, e economics, studying here, teaching here at the LSE. Hayek also played a, a big role in, in the life of, of, um, of, of uh, Karl Popper. Um, now, I'm going to say just three things really about Popper because I'm not going to go into all of his work. The, the two books that I read, and I can, this is my kind of entree into Popper, I didn't read much of the philosophy of science or the logic and inductivism versus logical positivism. It, it wasn't that it didn't interest me, it was just too difficult. <laughs> Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you. But what I did read was two books. He, he, the two books he wrote was The Open Society and Its Enemies, uh, which he had published, really written, by, by the way, in the 90s. He wrote, it, he wrote most of the book, by the way, when he was in New Zealand, which is an interesting story in its own right, because although he couldn't get a job here in the 1930s, through the AAC, uh, he, 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 got a, he got a job down in New Zealand where, where he stayed until about the mid-1940s. He said it wasn't the most intellectually vibrant of environments, but it was certainly a whole lot safer than staying in Vienna, to be perfectly honest. But down there he also had the time to work and write, which of course most academics don't get enough of these days, I think. We don't have enough time, I think, because we're doing too many other things. Um, and there he wrote really the, the foundations of the Open Society and its enemies, and did most of the work on what went on to become his other very popular book, which finally appeared I think published in 54 or 55, the, uh, the Poverty of Historicism. And those are the works that I first read of Popper's, not from a philosophical point of view, but from a very political point of view. And what Popper did, and this is why I always have read Popper, he kind of provided at least in those years, in the 50s and the 60s, remember this is the Cold War, this is the Cold War. And I think what Popper did in a philosophical and theoretical way, conceptual way, and in a brilliant way, whether or not you agree with him or not is another question, was provide what I would call almost the middle way between what I would call cons the conservative right and the Marxist left. It, they look like they're books which are entirely about cr criticisms of you know, totalizing theories such as Marxism. He also criticized Plato. But, you know, the, the, the criticism of totalizing determinist theories on the one side. But he's equally critical, by the way, in those books, actually, of conservatism. He's, 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 he is, in a sense, a theorist of social democracy. Now, later on in life, I, I think, and Popper himself, uh, Popper himself said, if I could become a socialist, remain a socialist, and you could retain liberty and freedom under socialism, I would remain a socialist. But in the end, towards the, I think towards the 70s and 80s, I think he kind of thought there was in the end a very fundamental problem, contradiction, if you like, between, a social, between remaining a socialist, even of a very mild democratic variety that he was, 
and freedom itself. And he certainly very much welcomed the collapse of the, the communist states of East Central Europe and then the USSR. He died, by the way, in 1994 at the grand old age of 92. So that's the first way I read Popper, really, of that kind of debate when I was a young student growing up in the 50s and 60s, thinking about what politics you would have and who did you ground much of that debate within. And Popper was almost the go-to person, particularly the open society, but also the poverty of his stories, which are still, you know, very massively read today. The, the second thing I'd say about Popper, and I've already indicated, he strikes me again, and this has been an important part of the history of this school. This school was founded by some very great people, but it was also taken forward, not just by overseas students and overseas people like, like, like Lewis and many, many others, all of them fantastically important, but also taken forward by what I would call those who escaped. <laughs> Um, you know, there is an enormous contribution that is, was made to this school, and indeed to this country, by all the people who were driven out by the fascists and Nazis in Germany. And in a sense, this school and this country, and indeed the United States, of course, benefited enormously. Some, somebody wrote a book later on, a very good book, called Hitler's Gifts. Hitler's Gifts was a rather tough-minded title, but you, you get what it means. And it seems to me, again... He's one of those very many great, great Jewish intellectuals coming from that great tradition in Vienna who made such a contribution to, to the world and to, to this school. I think the final point I make, and I was asked to say, are there any lessons to be drawn? Well, I'm, we had a debate earlier this week about lessons, and I'm not sure we came to any firm conclusions, David, other than we don't think there are many lessons to be drawn from history, but maybe there are. But I, if there is a lesson to be drawn about Popper, I, I kind of find it today... I think the world we are living in today is becoming uh, less tolerant, uh, more irrational, uh, less able to have rational debate between people who can disagree. Um, polarization is an overused word, but it, it, it's a polarization which I think has affected this country and is affecting the United States deeply and is affecting the West very, very deeply indeed. And I think this is a very grave danger to civil, what I call civilized debate, in the very best sense of that word civilized, not civilization. And in a way, what Popper reminds us of is that you can have disagreement and civilized debate between people who disagree without calling them enemies. And if that's a lesson to be learned from Popper's methodology, then that's a great lesson to be taken away. Thank you very much for listening. Thank you. Right, well, a very big thank you to, to both our speakers, I think, for a really high-quality set of contributions, which have, I think, actually given us a kind of potted history of the LSE. <laughs> um, I felt more and more as we were going along. It talked about the intellectual importance of the school and its role in the 20th century history of the UK and, indeed, internationally, and just had a sense of how wide the influence of this place and its connections have spread. I'm sure there'll be lots of questions. Um, we've got about 10 minutes for questions. I can see a hand going up already. I'm going to collect two questions at a time and pass them on to our speakers so do we have maximum opportunity for people to, uh, to, to, to express their points of view. Yes, you first and then you. Yeah. Uh, thank you for the very interesting talk. Uh, my question is about Popper. Yes. Actually, I did lecture on Monday at the Lakatoche Building at the Center for Philosophy of National and Social Sciences okay. on the young Popper. Popper before the LSE mm. uh, is written at that time, but of course he's written in German. Yes. I'm responsible for translating, editing, oh, and great. commenting the works from German to French. Okay. And so my talk was about this young Popper 
And my question, and I had no, well, no real answer, and this is why Professor Frege from this department told me to address the other departments. <laughs> the question is, would there be someone among your staff, your colleagues, among your uh, students who would be interested in working towards an English edition of that. In that case, I could be instrumental uh, having yeah. done the French edition. <laughs> and uh, there would also be uh, support from the French government in the scheme of the program that I'm heading. It's called Justice and Interest, where some of the issues are exactly the issues that you at last yeah. presented. So would I, where would I get support okay. Okay. or can, can someone you, interested Can in you wait, wait for a moment because I said I'd take two questions at a okay, time. Thank, so that thank, was a question about the young idea, papa, and then there was a question here from the gentleman with the, the green. And, okay, I'll take three questions because I can also see a question at the back. Yes, yeah. You, you want to take your question first? Yeah? Yes, yes, ask your question. I just wanted to ask about uh, Beatrice Potter-Webb. Yeah. And... Um, uh, Professor Cox, you mentioned that she wanted to live near power. Mm. With what end? Um, I think we can infer that there was a, a social work end, perhaps. Mm -hmm. uh, and if so, how effective was she? Yeah, good question. Thanks. Okay, so there's a question about Beatrice Webb. And then, the, 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 yes, the, uh, at, the, at the back there. Thank you, with a Burberry scarf. Hi. Um, do you think that 100 years from now we might be able to reflect and see that members of the LSE faculty or community will have shaped the world? And if so, who do you think they might be? I didn't get the first part of that question. I think the, the, the question, if I've got it, was 100 years from now, people looking back like we're doing today. Who, oh, who, who, yeah, is, who is well, here now? Yeah, David Stevenson would be <laughs> top of the list without, without a doubt. Sue Donnelly, I think. <laughs> All right. Oh okay. Prediction. So, okay. So quickly, I'll come back to you. Maybe web. easy for us to talk afterwards because I can certainly, if you give me your card, I think we could sit down and I could probably put you in contact. But thank you very much for that. I think that's terrific because I'm not a German reader myself, but I do know that some of his key works, his philosophical works on logic and scientific methodology, still remain untranslated, which is really quite remarkable. And even some of the great works he wrote in German only were translated 20 years later, like the poverty of historicism, but please come up to me afterwards and I will, I will do my very best on it. So I think it is so important to, to, to continue that great work uh, that he began as a very young man back in Vienna in the 1920s in an environment which was febrile, politically febrile. Um, on Beatrice, yes, this is an interesting good power. I remember a phrase, this is not from Beatrice, this is Sydney very quickly, I think, this, I, think I get this right, Sue, Sue, Sue's always much more accurate than I am sometimes on the facts. Uh, <laughs> I tried to get the facts. It goes facts with right. the job. <laughs> it goes with the job. No, quite right, too. Um, I think it was Sidney Webb who once said, there are 2,000 people in, in the British Empire who influence the empire, and they all live within about a square mile <laughs> in and around here. Uh, you've got the city of London down there. You've got the Westminster, what we call the Westminster Village, so-called, over here. You've got the law courts there. And therefore, actually, the location of the school itself yeah. is a function of power. And Sydney was actually quite aware of this. He actually said, we don't want to locate it up in Kensington or something like that. You know, he didn't want it to be away because this is where power was. And if you actually see the location of the LSE, it is not accidental that Sydney himself, and I think Beatrice was well aware, that having it here therefore gave you access to the powerful 
And by accessing it to the powerful, you therefore enhance the influence of the school. And I do think, of course, Beatrice was interested in social work, but she was interested in much more beside. I think Sue and I have had long discussions about that. We keep, you know, the betterment of society. Well, of course she believed in the betterment of society. You know, you don't believe in the opposite, do you, unless you're a really unpleasant individual. I think it was much more than that, though. I, th I think there was a kind of sense of a the kind of society and the kind of people she wanted to influence to change that society. Not from below, not by revolution, not like the sorts of things that were happening in Austria in the 1920s and the 1930s or in Germany. You know, revolutionary revolt from below by the working classes running, walking behind people with red flags and waving banners and maybe carrying guns as well to confront and smash the state like the Bolsheviks had done in 1917. It would be this slow immersion, the slow evolution of ideas. They were Fabians, named after Fabius, the famous Roman general who said, never engage in a battle, or, or always come slowly but surely through the institutions to influence the powerful and the influential. Um, permeation was the term actually used to describe that. And I think, therefore, her, her, the, the theory was one of permeation and influence, and the influence of the, of the powerful. And, and therefore, when I talked about the dinner parties, which apparently they're very, very funny. If you read Virginia Woolf's diaries, they're very, very amusing on that. Oh, God, another dinner round with Beatrice. Oh, no, no more mutton. You know, they're <laughs> quite amusing. You can imagine Virginia, <laughs> a very sharp and brilliant woman in her own right as well, but very different. To, saying, look, but basically, these were about power, influencing, shaping ideas. And that is, what, she was engaged in this from the beginning of the mo moment she woke up to the moment she went to sleep. It was about ideas and getting those ideas to the right people who would then share. And in a way, the LSE was a reflection of that idea to change the world through the permeation of certain ideas, not in any revolutionary direction, but in a, in a slowly but surely, very English way, I suppose, to, to bring about the change. And that, in a sense, was the Fabian, the Fabian notion, and I think that's the way I would describe it. Uh, Sue? And I think, um, I often think that one of the high points, or perhaps the first high point of that, is actually during the Second World War, mm. where you do see a lot of LSE people, both well-known ones like Hugh Dalton and not so well-known yeah. ones, actually working in government and having a big influence Huge. on the yeah. way the Fabulous. government is run and in the post-war kind of development of reconstruction of the state. And I think that's, that's kind of one of the first times you see this element of actually getting people into, into positions. There's a wonderful letter in one of the student files. Uh, somebody you will never have heard of writes back to the school secretary and says, oh, it's wonderful here at the Ministry of Labour. It's just like being back at LSE. You know, I'm surrounded with all my old, old colleagues. And, that, and I think that is mm. what, you know, I mean, Beatrice Webb was very elderly by that time. She died in 43. But I think she would have been very proud of that, of seeing people actually mm. working. Mm. Whether in 100 years, that's interesting. Uh, I didn't answer that. <laughs> it's interesting. I, good, I, good for you, Sue. I You're think, taking um, that one on. I think it's, I mean, when LSE was founded, mm. it was mm. very distinctive mm. and really quite unique yeah. mm. in what it was seeking to do as what was eventually to become uh, you know, an institution of higher education. And therefore, it attracted people to it who wanted to be engaged with society because there were not all that many other places mm. where you could do that. 
in mm. the same way. Mm. I mean, I think your piece of research where you say how many people at LSE are doing research can, by the First World War compared with other universities is phenomenal. And that's not the case now. You know, kind of LSE academics are working in a much more crowded field mm. and a, a field where, you know... Um, well, in the social sciences, they're almost not considered to be as engaged as those who perhaps work in STEM, for instance. So I think it will be quite different. I'm sure there will be people who will have either gone on to be significant either in their own research fields or maybe in government, having been students or whatever, or in non-governmental organisations. But I think it's a very different environment yeah. now. Yeah. Very different. I mean, I think when... Uh, people from LSE went out from here, you know, certainly in the 20s and 30s, they were bringing a very distinctive set of skills that other students and other academics were not, did not have in quite the same way from other institutions, yeah, yeah. and certainly not in the kind of um, numbers that you would have seen from somewhere else. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd largely, I'd almost entirely agree with that. And, and, and the interesting question is, is the LSE today, the, the LSE, the school we have today, is, what, what resemblance does it have, other than institutional, where we are, uh, to the LSE I've been talking about maybe in those the, the, the past 50, 60 years? It's, a, it's an interesting question because, you know, the world moves on, change comes about. Uh, you know, you know, the, you know the cliches: globalization, the, the rise of Asia, the new transformation, the growth of business and management within within the LSE. You've got to make a lot of money. You know, there was I always thought there was a social and political purpose of the LSE, whether whether you consider it to be Fabian, even if you're anti-Fabian. Remember the economics department here under under the great Lionel Robbins and then Hayek actually saw itself very much engaged in combating Fabianism, almost, uh, or, or combating the kind of ideas of John Maynard Keynes, who, by the way, had a lot of affiliations with the school, though he was always a Cambridge man. I kind of feel that that edge to the school may have gone, though I don't blame any of the individuals here. I think it's simply the way the higher education itself has evolved, you know, over, over the last 25 years. And the thing that worries me most, I suppose, is, you know, it, it, I, I don't want the LSE to become just like some other higher education institution. I always wanted to keep and retain a, a distinctiveness and, and a role within this society and indeed within the world as a whole. I think it's still holding on to it, but I think we've got to, got to be aware of, I think, what the original mission was without repeating everything from Fabianism. I do, I do believe in that, yeah. All right. I think we've, we've, we've gone over our time. Uh, <laughs> um, I've, years are over our time. I think, I I, I think it, it's, it's important that the, the, school, the school was not set up as a left-wing and Fabian institution, right. even if Fabian set it up. And it's always been important that it's been a centre of debate, mm. I think, in which dif different currents yes. of philosophical and intellectual and political and economic thinking have been brought into contact, and that, that needs to be kept. Yes. That being said... I think there is perhaps an opportunity for rethinking the fun function of the Labour Party and of the British left and of the international left at the moment when they suffered a very painful defeat. Mm. And it may be that there are, there are opportunities there which, which in which members of the school could play a part, hopefully in a constructive fashion. Anyway, I think we've had a really stimulating session. Um, can I remind you of the... Uh, exhibition down in the atrium, and Sue, you'll be, you'll be, you'll be going, we'll be going down there imme immediately after. That's down on the ground floor of this building, yeah? The, the atrium where student services are. 
Um, so that, that's there. Do, do, do go and have a look at it. Um, but thank you all very much for coming today. I hope you've enjoyed the session. And I would like to thank our speakers again on your behalf. Thank you very much.